Hello. Hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Or not, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Oh, dear. Yeah. Hi. See, this is what happens when we don't have a uh, an intro, guys. We just... Oh, our intro is welcome. It's welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome. welcome. <laughs> just saying welcome, welcome over and over again. Yeah. Welcome to Tipsy Text, the podcast where we get tipsy on life and on talk life. about animals and stuff. Always a, always the animals. Oh, yeah. And I'm Alicia. And I'm Katie. And we're vet tech students. Woo! Woo! And we've just started back semester two. Whoop whoop. Whoop whoop. If you are like one of our classmates, then I'm sure you know the struggles that we are currently facing. Oh. Uh, and if you're currently at, well, currently at university studying anything, I'm sure you can relate to our struggles, so. Yep. Those those eight to eight a.m. to six p.m. days. All Woo! them beautiful days, beautiful mm. days. I love them. They're my favorite. Mmm, mmm, so tasty. Meal Just... prep has never been so good. <laughs> That's my whole weekend now. If I'm not studying, it's meal prep, so that I don't have to cook at seven o'clock at night. Off, big off. Jeepers! Oh yeah, um, Katie, what are you doing? It's eight o'clock. I'm just. Roasting some chicken. Just, I need some dinner. I need food. I need food. It's eight o'clock at night. I'm like, I'm hungry. Bro, the stomach knows no time. The stomach knows no time. Uh, do we have any admin? Anything you want to Housekeeping. say? Housekeeping. Housekeeping. I don't think so. Um, if you haven't yet, follow us on everything. But we'll, I'm sure, we'll say that again at the end. Mm. Do you want to tell us what they are first? Okay. Guys, this, is a, this is a trial run for you, <laughs> this, Katie. This is, a, this, is a, this is a test. Okay. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. No, we don't have a Snapchat. We don't have a Snapchat. We could make a Snapchat, though. <laughs> we should make a Snapchat. That can be, that can be your t- you can be your pet poetry. You can make oh, Snapchat. Jesus. Okay, all right. I'm making a Snapchat. Um, You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Woo! are there any others? I think that's it. You did it. You did it. Yeah, Everyone did it. How mighty pucky pucky for Katie. Thank you. Uh, and we're tipsy text pretty much everywhere except Twitter, which uh, where we are text tipsy. I yes. Haha. See, I'm learning. I'm getting there. I'm getting See, I didn't even, there. even I didn't know that. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I said in the last episode that. Um, I was that you guys should prepare for some content uh, on my on my side, uh, and I have prepared some content for you. I have a chunky section, mm. um, so hopefully Alicia's will lighten it up afterward. But uh, if you have anything to say, Alicia, before I begin, um, I just think when I was editing the last episode, I said species of dog when I meant to say oh species of cat when I meant to say breeds of cat but that's about it all right get Just into fixing it up, fixing up some wording and we can continue so my topic this episode is about greyhound racing uh and specifically greyhound racing in new zealand so just to give you some context i were uh, i thought i would first tell you a bit about greyhounds because i think they're really cool dogs yeah um so all of the information from this section um 
about the history of greyhounds, the origins of greyhound racing, greyhound racing in New Zealand, and uh, all my f- future sections. Um, I got my resources, uh, my information from, I should say, uh, bayareagreyhounds.org, the dreaded Wikipedia, that was just for some base searching, don't worry, Greyhound Racing New Zealand, the New Zealand Greyhound Racing Independent Welfare Review, released on the 25th of June 2013, that is relevant, and the report to the New Zealand Racing Board on the welfare issues affecting greyhound racing in New Zealand, written by the Honourable Rodney Hansen, and those are very important documents which I will be referring to later. So, the history of greyhounds. Here are yes. some quick fire facts and interesting history for you all. So, greyhounds are the oldest purebred dog uh, in the, uh, the currently alive, uh, dating to the time of the pharaohs. Ooh. Yeah. The first records of greyhound-type dogs appear about 8,000 years ago. Damn. Ancient, yeah, a long, long time ago. Ancient Egypt, in ancient Egypt, greyhounds were revered as gods and only royalty were allowed to own them. Yes. And all sight hounds that we know today, so that's whippets, um, Italian greyhounds, etc., um, descended from the ancient greyhound. I love it. So the greyhound is the only breed of dog mentioned by name in the Bible. Um, King James Version, Proverbs, th- uh, Proverbs chapter 30, 29-31, if you would like to look that up. Hmm. Um, let's have a look. Throughout history, greyhounds have been prized and revered. During the Dark Ages, a time of disease and famine, greyhounds were saved from extinction by priests who bred them for noblemen. Until around 1700, owning a greyhound was the exclusive right of nobility. Oh, damn. Greyhounds were the first European dog in the New World when they accompanied Christopher Columbus on his second expedition um, in 1493. Both Chaucer, Henry Chaucer, and William Shakespeare immortalized greyhounds in literature. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, the greyhound was the first breed of dog, dog that Chaucer wrote about, and Shakespeare mentions greyhounds in Henry V. Ah. Yes. Uh, during the Renaissance, uh, greyhounds were a favourite of royalty, including Queen Elizabeth I. General George Custer uh, coursed his pack of 14 greyhounds the night before the Battle of Little Bighorn. I'm not quite Ooh. sure what they mean by that. Um, and every greyhound alive today can trace its lineage back to one dog, King Cobb, whelped in England in 1839. Ooh. Oh, that's so cool. So, greyhounds are by far the fastest breed of dog. Segway! They can reach speeds in excess of 40 mile per hour for short distances. In other words, 16 to 17 meters per second. They zoom. They, they zoom. Zoomy. They zoom. <laughs> so in 1912, Owen Patrick Smith developed and patented a mechanical lure in North America that would run around an oval track and the sport of greyhound racing was born. It was based on an old uh, English um, sport, shall we say, um, called coursing, um, which is, oh, there we go. We figured out what Henry, what um, what George Custer was doing. He was coursing his pack of 12, 14 greyhounds. And coursing is um, a hair, it's another word for hair coursing. Um, hair spelt H-A-R-E. Um, and it's a contest in which two greyhounds pursue a live hare. The contest 
there was a contest won by the dog who accumulated the most points awarded for the chase and unfortunately ultimately the manner of the kill oh so uh it was changed uh obviously the guy owen patrick smith developed the mechanical lore um to help improve um kind of welfare and the standards around coursing and around greyhound racing mm-hmm. uh one so that's you know that's why he did it um and so that's how it was created um so coursing so more specifically let's uh, moving on to new zealand um did you have any questions before i moved on um before no I, before i just start yapping really. for <laughs> oh god you guys are gonna get tired of my voice so very soon <laughs> okay so now we're on to the history of greyhound racing in new zealand so yes. coursing, so coursing, um, that's the act of you know chasing a hare, a live hare, was banned in New Zealand uh, in in 1954, uh, and there was a but there was a club in New Zealand devoted to hare coursing, um, but this became the New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association when they oh. introduced the mechanical lure system to this country. So New Zealand is one of only eight countries currently. Um, that have a commercial greyhound racing industry. The others are Australia, Mexico, Macau, hopefully I'm saying that right, Macau, Ireland, United Kingdom, and the United States, but that's only five states of the United States. I'm not quite sure which ones they are. I think they might be, I think off the top of my head from my my research, two of them are Miami and Florida. Don't quote me on that one. Uh, And the last one is, the last country is Vietnam. So the Greyhound Clubs of New Zealand, um, they obtained uh, permission to hold um, what are called equaliser meetings in 1971. Um, So equalising is a type of betting where basically you you put money in and then you get money out for winning. Uh, And then 10 years later, the right to uh, conduct totaliser meetings. Um, Totalising is another form of betting and one that's used uh, currently in racing betting including the horse racing industry so that's when money is put forward um, and the money that so the so the individual animal that the most money is being put on um, they it pays the least back so you know how you have like favorites in races mm-hmm. um, they always have like the lowest you can you know tell the favorite because they have the lowest paying back um, and that yeah that's because a lot of people are putting money on them yeah, just split more ways. Yeah. So, uh, it, however, until 1991, the majority of Greyhound race meets were non-totalizer, so they were uh, equalizer meetings. However, um, coinciding with the advent of trackside television in 1991, the number of uh, meetings increased. Currently, meetings are held in at six racing tracks in New Zealand. Um, they are they are in Manukau. Cambridge, Palmerston North, Wanganui, hey. Christchurch, and Southland. So there was a track in Dunedin, however, um, it closed during the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, and is not and will not be reopening. COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen. So racing in New Zealand is governed by the New Zealand Racing Board, um, in according in accordance with the Racing Act of two thousand and three. There are 11 racing clubs in New Zealand um, who are directly responsible for the management of the race, uh, of each racetrack. Around 700 dogs are bred each year for racing and around 200 to 300 are imported each year from Australia. Mm-hmm. So just to give you uh, an idea, so about that's about 
roughly about a thousand dogs are being introduced into the industry uh, every year. Shit. Sure. So in 2013, there was significant concerns raised uh, about the greyhound racing industry, um, mainly around the uh, standards of uh, welfare uh, of the greyhounds that were uh, in kennels, in breeding facilities, um, and actually on the track uh, itself. Mm. So the New Zealand, uh, the uh, greyhound racing New Zealand. Um, asked for an independent study to be carried out. Okay, so yes, yeah, so the New Zealand Ray- Greyhound Racing Association asked for an independent uh, an independent welfare review to be conducted uh, in two thousand and thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the point, uh, the purpose of the uh, um, the report was to evaluate the current standards um, and enforcement that govern welfare of racing greyhounds. Um, it encompassed the life cycle of racing greyhounds, including racetrack safety, health and veterinary considerations, and retirement. Okay. Edding, uh, also, oh, sorry, you were going to say something? Yeah, I was going to ask. Um, so you say independent study. So the the greyhound, this is a bit controversial. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, here we go. Um, so the greyhound New, Ze- New Zealand... Um, did they pay these people to do the study? Yes, yeah, so it was a paid study, but it was done independently um, by uh, three people, it looks like. Bill mm-hmm. Colgan, Craig Neal, and Les Foy, all of uh, all from the steering... Uh, they were... Oh, no, hang on. Let me find out who did this. Okay, right, no, okay. So I was... Okay, I was correct. Okay, hang on. Okay. So can you ask the question again, please? <laughs> and we'll start again. Um, okay, so basically it was, um, were they paid? The answer was yes. Yeah. Um, and you said, and it was an independent study. So, yeah, so as, far, as far as I'm aware, it was a paid um, study in terms of they paid them their wages to complete the study. However, mm-hmm. it was conducted by th- uh, an in- independent people. Um, it was, uh, uh, the review team was led by a, what's called a steering committee. Okay. Um, and to undertake the review by an independent process, I'm quoting here. Okay. The structure and personnel for the re- for the review team was uh, Bill Colgan, uh, Craig Neal, and Les Foy, um, and WHK, which I will World World Health something Health Kennels. <laughs> oh fuck off! Why am I doing this to myself? No, I'm asking the hard questions. You're all good. Welfare, hang on. Welfare, horticulture. I'm not quite um, sure. KFC. Okay, so it's was done by a company, um, an organization tie, uh, called the WHK. I'm not quite sure what it stands for. I've been looking. I'm sorry, I can't find out. <laughs> they were the ones that were engaged to perform the research, um, so to collect the date, the data, and uh, review the data. And work with the steering committee that was uh, Bill Colgan, Craig Neal, and Liz Foy mm-hmm. um, to develop a report uh, of the findings and then create some recommendations um, from that. Okay, I'll but, let you. I'll let you carry on before I ask more questions. Thank you. Okay. Um. So, so the another um other purposes of these uh, of the report was to evaluate the breeding industry regulations. Another one was to review New Zealand Ra- the New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association's mechanism for tracking 
racing greyhounds uh, and making recommendations for the improvement on their national database. Um, it was a review of the industry's awareness of, greyhounds we- of greyhound welfare and it would propose options for educating industry p- participants on minimum welfare standards. Um, there were other, there's quite a few um, other kind of goals of the study, um, but they, they go on and I'll yeah. let you read those. We don't yourself. have time for that. We don't have time for that. Um, so at the end of the report, um, the report was released um, in 2013. Um, the National Animal Welfare the National Animal Welfare Advisory Committee reported again to the uh, Minister of Racing in 2014. Mm-hmm. It commented that, quote, the industry is now taking the matter of greyhound welfare very seriously and is developing a quality culture approach of continuous improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, it found that the industry had adopted an industry code of welfare based on the National Animal uh, Welfare Advisory Committee um, dog code but had also expanded it to include specific greyhound issues mm-hmm. um, it made uh, compliance with the code mandatory for all owners of greyhounds mm-hmm. it established it established this is very key here it established a national database yes Didn't have one before it introduced measures to restrict the number of dogs bred it moved to substantially upgrade its rehoming program and it made improvements to track design and maintenance So the chair of the NAWAC concluded in his report uh, of 2014, uh, nothing I saw during my visits left me with with significant concerns. This this industry has made huge strides in the past 15 months, and though there are still matters to better address, such as clearer restrictions to limit over-racing stress and increased Mm. rehoming, they are identified, acknowledged, and they will be addressed and solutions are being worked on. The aspects of the changes in the industry that impressed me most was the clearly evident quality, uh, qu- clearly evident quality improvement culture at all levels of the sport. So there was another report in 2016. There are a lot of reports going on here. Um, again, done by the National Animal Welfare Advisory Committee. NAWAC. And the report that yeah NAWAC NAWAC or NAWAC. Not no nawak, nawak, Sorry, yep. The report contained the following recommendations. So this is three years now after the initial uh, independent study was done. So it recommended that the New Zealand Greyhound Race Racing in, uh, Association should work towards achieving best practice in frequency of breeding standards, in particular by requiring that bitches are not mated so as to whelp and rear litters on consecutive seasons. So that's uh, having breaks between um, mating. So having like a break, a break heat, so to speak. And requiring veterinary advice to be sought before mating bitches of seven years of age or more. Second, that the New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association prioritise the finalisation and implementation of enforcement and educational initiatives undertaken by the NZGRA, including the follow-up and education of unsuccessful breeders. And finally, that the New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association report rehoming and euthanasia figures to the NAWAC annually in such a way that the fate of each animal can be clearly identified. So, that's kind of what we're going off here. 
that's kind of our big ones. That was up until so so twenty seven twenty sixteen. That's where we're at. We've created right. we've we've created a database for all this information. We are you know starting to show some serious interest in the welfare of these dogs. You know we, you know we're starting up you know inquiries and making sure that these dogs are be, you know being looked after. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're hoping. That's you know we're going from there. And you'd hope that after all that, there'd be some improvement. You'd yeah. think. You would think. Four years, you can do it. Four years, you can do it. You're right. However, the saga and reports continue. Yay! So after a petition was brought to Parliament um, by the New Zealand Greyhound Protection League um, that found, um, that had done some research of them, of, of their own, and found some worrying, uh, worrying figures. Um, they asked for another report to be done, so the New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association um, commissioned another report in mm. 2017, and this was carried out by the Honourable Rodney Hansen. Uh, and thus, uh, from now on, I will be uh, referring to this report as the Hansen Report. Noted. So, the Hansen Report uncovered some pretty shocking things um and i will read uh, for you um some of the conclusions that it came to hit me so it found that while there had been significant improvements in data collection in some areas particularly the tracking of greyhounds who did not race or uh, who did race and retired from racing the database was still seriously deficient and for mm. further rules, uh, further rule changes, and more rigorous enforcement of registration requirements are required. Um, it also found that while the New Zealand Greyhound Racing had made genuine and determined commitment to improving greyhound welfare, there was still some seriously lacking places. Um, for example, the 2013 report highlighted the importance of managing the greyhound population but levels of euthanasia were said to be unacceptably high. Mm. Um, and so just here are some statistics for, for, for you. So between 2013 and 2017, so between the period of the first study being carried out and the study, the Hansen Report, 1,447 greyhounds were euthanized. Damn. And an additional... Uh, 1,271 greyhounds were found to be unaccounted for. So they were not on any records. They hadn't been um, recorded as being euthanized or no one knew where they were. What the fuck? Wait, yeah. um, what was that number again? So between... Uh, the, of the missing the missing greyhounds? Yeah. What was the number? 1,271. So over four years, that's about 370... 318, 317 greyhounds a year that weren't accounted for. And if you do the math for 1,447 over four years, divided by four years, that's 361 or 362 greyhounds. So almost a dog a day being euthanized. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. So the the report, this is the 2013 report, um, pointed to the need to reduce the numbers of greyhounds bred and imported, and imported, 
to extend the racing careers of greyhounds uh, and expand rehoming opportunities in order to reduce the levels of euthanasia to acceptable levels. Mm. However, in 2013, the Hansen Report found that the number of greyhounds born and entering the industry has not reduced significantly. Uh, there had been a moderate increase in the ability in the availability of racing opportunities and levels of rehoming. However, gains have been unsuf- had had been insufficient to right the structural imbalance. And finally, while there had been significant advances in track safety, leading to marginal reduction in injuries and deaths from injury while racing, the numbers of injuries occurring at the first turn remains high, and efforts. Um, needed to continue to find ways of preventing the convergence or bunching um, which is a major cause of serious injury and death during racing mm. so that's what the report uh, the Hansen report concluded so that he so overall concluded that not basically nothing hardly anything had been done um, from 2013 until then um, to significantly improve the numbers of dogs that were that yeah. were being euthanized. Even so, though the 2016 report, they said they had been. Even though, even though the 2016 report ha- showed that, or to, um, to, quotes showed, said said that they had, um, it was it was not true, and that was mainly because they had such poor records that they couldn't even, you know, they couldn't even prove that they were right. So Hansen uh, made. 20 recommendations to the New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association um, which included and like I can't some of these I can't even believe weren't like a thing already like all kennels used for breeding rearing and training greyhounds for racing should be inspected by the racing integrity unit at least once a year like were they why were they not doing that once a year is not hard team no like Uh, you you could do it like you could do that every day Every day, if you're checking the bitch, like, bitch dog. No, like, like the, the owners, obviously the, the breeders are going to be checking that, but they, you know, they're saying that the, that the industry isn't even, like, regulating that. Okay. Um, another one. The New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association should consider whether it is necessary for ear branding, ear branding continu- to continue, and if it is, to require ear branding to be done under local anaesthetic. Why? Okay. How so, is ear branding done? Do you know? Tattooing. What? It's a it's a permanent uh, it's a permanent tattooing of it's the tattoo, inner okay. pinna. Yeah. Not even local. Fucking. Yeah. Um, so some yeah some some other ones. Um, the NZGRA should introduce uh, a rule to rule change um, to establish a separate register of breeding bitches. Ooh, what's some other one? Oh yeah, New Zealand GRA should verify the accuracy of its database by um, making provision for the racing integrity mm, racing integrity so unit. auditing it basically. Basically, because it they're not even auditing themselves, There's even though it's a it's a self regulated industry that isn't even regulating itself at this point. That's the first problem: is self regulated industry. That's where yeah, you're going to run into problems. That's an alarm bell right there. Ooh. Yeah. Um, I'm fine. It's fine. Okay, it's here's another. Here's another one that's kind of like a are you serious kind of thing. The New I've Zealand got my Greyhound. Wine. I'm okay. I'm ready. The New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association should give consideration to requiring the desexing of greyhounds as a condition of G- deregistration. So before they get rehomed. 
Oh, well, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, you're not using it anymore. Unless the owner says specifically, I want to breed from them. Yeah. And then uh, Hansen goes on to say that New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association should continue to increase rehoming opportunities for greyhounds. It should... Um, basically, it's honestly rehashing the, the recommendations from the 2013 study a little bit because they just obviously didn't get it. Like, they weren't listening the first time. It's insane. So, after the Hansen report... That was like a huge thing in New Zealand. You might have even heard about it on the news. There was somewhat familiar, but yeah, it brought it it kind of shed light on a lot of you know a lot of some of the really kind of toxic industry that that it really is. So um, now this is an interesting fact that you might find interesting. Interesting that Nick Cave, the uh, our our boy Nick from Massey. Can we say his? Can we say? Because. No, oh for God's sake, no. We'll cut that out. <laughs> our boy Nick. Probably the love of God. Okay. Our boy Nick Cave. Nick Cave from Massey. Nick Cave. He carried out um a study. Well, he it was a it was a paid study, again by the New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association. Don't disappoint me, Nick. Um well it was it was a commissioned it was a commission study. Um just okay. because they the the Greyhound racing industry obviously wanted to know you know what was going on so he um so nick cave they uh what they did was they brought heaps of racing greyhounds to massey mm-hmm. um and um put them all through uh, a ct scan mm-hmm. and found that racing was putting severe stress on the dog's hocks so that's the um the back surprise kind of our, kind surprise of our, like, i'm so shocked yeah i'm so shocked <laughs> i'm being sarcastic yeah so the dog's hocks, uh, so that's the, um, kind of, you imagine your, your, what's the elbow of your foot called? The elbow of your foot, the heel? Yeah. No. Yeah, that. What's oh, that yeah, one called? The, the ankle. I knew Ankle. <laughs> the elbow. What's the elbow of your heel <laughs> I'm called? So I mean, I've seen stupider things, don't worry. Okay. Um, <laughs> your ankle. Like, if, yeah, that's, that's kind of the equivalent of the hock in dogs. Anyway, they found that it was um, that racing was putting severe stress on the hocks, uh, increasing the risk of fractures during racing. Now for some sad statistics. Oh, don't do this. Yeah, it's gonna be. I've sad. got my wine. It's okay. It'll get better. I promise. Okay, It'll get please. better. But last season, so last year, fifty-four dogs were euthanized at racing at racing events due to track injuries. Fifty-four dogs, and two hundred. And 97 dogs were euthanized because Greyhound Racing New Zealand claimed they were not rehomeable. Despite despite their, they said that they would, you know, try and rehome as many dogs as possible. Apparently, 297 oh. dogs were non-rehomeable. 297 plus 54. Uh, 297 plus 54. Yep. Yeah. So it's 351 dogs. So that's about 10 less. Yeah, but again, about one dog a day. This season, so far, or so well, uh, oh well, almost, almost over. I think it's over now. Um, okay. The last statistics that I have: twenty-three dogs were euthanized trackside. That's better. And one hundred and fifty-one dogs euthanized um, due to issues with, uh, uh, due to the inability to be rehomed. So roughly half. Yeah, so it's really good. The previous season, so 
It's not ideal, but it's better. It's so much better. Yeah. It's better. It's getting better. So that's my kind of segue into the happiness. The, that's my segue into the happiness part of the sec in this section. And you'll be happy to know uh, he, my time of talking is almost over. No. So, don't be sorry about it. <laughs> so the New Zealand Greyhound Racing Association created the Great Mates uh, Rehoming Program. Oh! So the Great Mates Rehoming Program launched uh, a few years ago now, and its centre is in Levin, so not far from here. And it acts as a bit of like a halfway house between racing and home life for greyhounds. So it Babies. introduces greyhounds to the sounds of home appliances, such Aww. as vacuums and like microwaves and ovens and all this kind of stuff. Because you've got to remember, these dogs have lived outside their entire lives. Mm. Um, they even have to introduce them to others, like other breeds of dog, because they don't recognize them as dogs initially. Um, especially white fluffy dogs, they've got to do some serious work with that. All the all the dogs get uh, checked over by a vet. They get vaccinated. They get desexed. Um, they have their teeth done, and they even have their nails clipped. Oh, this is this is, this is how it should be. And uh, then they get paired with um, families. And uh, if, you know, if things don't work out, they can always bring the dog back and they'll try again at a different home. So their aim is to, is to rehome everything that comes in. And that's, and that's the point. Um, but they have expanded since their home, since their um, birth of, in Levin. So they also now have kennels in Cambridge and Rangiora. And they also partner with Greyhounds as Pets. Kiwi Kiwi Hounds, May Hounds, and Night Rave Greyhounds Limited. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that Night, Night Rave... Night Rave Fielding! Yes, that's in Fielding. I was thinking just about to say, I think that's in Fielding. So, if you are ever interested in adopting a Greyhound, apparently they make great pets. Do it. Um, they love lounging on the sofa. Uh, and if you give them enough exercise, they'll apparently they're asleep the rest of the day. They do great zoomies. They're very cuddly. And they do this adorable chattery thing with their teeth, and it's just so cute. And they're like, oh, it's just adorable. I Is love it just hands. like... They're like chatter. It's like... um, It's not stress-related like, or anything? It's just a little... No, they're just... It's like excited, and they just do it when they're happy, and they just chat. Oh, it's like the most adorable thing ever. Is it like the cat's equivalent of the... They don't make noise, but yeah, it's like it's like that. The, the like equivalent. That kind of thing. Yeah, the equivalent. But please consider... Um, adopting a greyhound if you're looking for a pet because apparently they make great pets so that's it from me for my education section i hope you learned something um so yeah in conclusion the greyhound racing industry is still kind of shite but they're getting better mm. they needed telling a lot of times <laughs> but they're getting better it'd be interesting to see if there's been a change of like management or like mm. the heads in this time mm. um i think uh, there is a new, well, I say new... Um, new quotation marks. Head of the greyhound racing industry. Mm. Um, but yeah. Oh, that's so good. Like, that yeah. last section you described, that is, like, ideal. That That is almost gold standard. I think gold standard would probably go a little bit further. I can't think what that... But it's pretty much just gold standard, so that's really, 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 really good. Yep. It's really good. So we're getting better. They're getting the the industry is is improving. Um, adopt a greyhound. Adopt a greyhound. S support more halfway houses. Yeah, you'll be you'll you'll love it. You'll love it. Right, I will let you chat now. Oh, oh, oh. 
Oh, because okay. I know, I know you've been waiting all week to tell us all about your section. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to talk about a really, Do Mr. Cat Eon of cats. Get it? Domestication. The domestication. Domestication. So I'm going to talk about. Puns. Yes. I'm basically going to talk about the evolution, domestication of like humans and cats over time. So at the top. Uh, I got my sources from a National Geographic article called Cats Domesticated Themselves, Ancient DNA Shows by Casey Smith in 2017. So this article was really good for just summarising everything in the article in like a way that people can kind of understand, mm-hmm. if I don't say it very well, because I probably won't. Um, and it's based around this article by Otini, C. Otini et al. in 2017 in the, I think it's the Journal of Nature Ecology of Ev- uh, Nature, Ecology and Evolution, titled The Paleogenetics of Cat Dispersal in the Ancient World. Um, and I also used Wikipedia for like time periods and like estimating how long ago they were, etc, etc. And the global, and www.globalegyptianmuseum.org. Right. Okie So just like give you some context about cat pet numbers. So... In 2018, I tried to get more recent dates, but it was kind of difficult. So, in yeah. 2018, there are about 370 million pet Whoa. cats in the world. So, wow. that's from Statistica.com. So, yeah, that's... A lot of us are owning kitties, and that's not even... Like, some people probably... There's probably a lot more, because people don't just have a cat. Yeah. A stray adopts you, and you say, okay, you can come inside. Okay, then, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. So... Yeah, so how did there get to be so many cats? And also, such a what like, have them be so wide-ranging? Because they're apparently in almost every continent apart from Antarctica. Whoa. What are yeah. the cats What are the cats up north doing? They're freezing. They're freezing. So, like, so what, what, what do they have that makes us want them to be with us? Like, companionship. Katie, what do you reckon? What do they have? Why, why, would, you, why would you have a cat? I don't know. I mean... Well, this is going to be controversial, but I'm a dog person, so... <laughs> but I d- no, yeah. I, am, I am partial to a good cat. I mean, if a you've got kitty. a good cat that, like, that is, like, a bit cuddly, um, like, likes, likes pats, and, yeah. But I don't like cats that are, like, seriously aloof. I'm like, I can't deal with you. Like, I don't need your bullshit in my I life. don't need your bullshit. But, I mean, why would you have a cat? Cuddly, fluffy, cute. Yeah, that's why I'd have a cat. Yeah, so um, basically it's been thought that cats were back in the day and probably even today in some places. They're good for rodent control and back in the day they were symbolic objects mm-hmm. and they just provided general companionship. So Symbolic objects like of gods? Yeah. Oh, cool. Like worshipping and stuff. So, but how long ago did the did the, our kitty cats first make their ways into our lives and like start the little... Start the seed, plant the seed to grow <laughs> into the... Plant the seed the, of domesticity. Plant the seed of the 370 million cats that are here today. <laughs> yeah. So this paper, it highlights, yeah, it, it identifies and kind of highlights the five wild subspecies of wild, of um, cats. So that's, so wild cats, their scientific name is Felis sylvestris. And so the paper highlights... The five, the genetics of five subspecies that were found in the old world. So the old world includes Africa, Asia, Europe. Okay. Um, and these five subspecies were Felis sylvestris sylvestris, Felis sylvestris libica, 
Felis Silvestris Ornate, Felis Silvestris Caffra, and Felis Silvestris Beatty. I don't know how to say that, sorry. So, of all these subspecies that were like revealed via genetic analysis of the wild and, and domestic cats that are currently existing, the North African slash Southwestern Asian. Felis Sylvestris libica was the one to that was determined to be the one that was ultimately domesticated. Okay. So yeah, they did this by looking at if you like are versed in the genetic language, so they looked at nuclear short tandem repletes, and if you are a bit familiar with DNA, then mitochondrial DNA is a good way to good way to. Oh, the good old mitochondrial DNA. So yeah, this is like I didn't do research on this, but this is from my general knowledge. So mitochondrial DNA is basically passed from female to female. So it's a it's a good way when sometimes like because within the cell there's the mitochondria and they kind of are a bit hardier. I feel they carry their own DNA apart from the nucleus yeah. of the cell. So it's a good way to trace stuff back quite a while. So cool. Do your own research. Yeah, because can't can't we um we can trace our lineage back, like everyone can yeah. trace their lineage back to like one person because of their to one woman because of her mitochondrial DNA. Yeah, yeah. So, mitochondrial DNA is where it's at. When it's very, very specific. When nuclear DNA is not the best. Ooh. So, in the paper, they also split the... I'm going to say FS now because I can't be able to say the full name. Um, the FS Libica into subclades, subgroups, um, that had a wide distribution with of one of these subgroups from west to east Anatolia, which is basically modern-day Turkey, and around the Fertile Crescent. So, this DNA has been traced back to as far as about 10,000 BC in the Neolithic era. 10,000 BC? So, yep, so that's about 12,000 years ago. 12,000 years ago. They, yeah, so they, that's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time ago. So, they, pre, they, <laughs> they theorised that this DNA subplate was present, and then, the, and then they found, continued to find this DNA throughout the Bronze Age, which is... 3,200 to 600 BC, about 5,000 to 2,600 years ago, and into the Iron Age, which was between 15,000 BC to 500 BC, so about 3,500 3, to 2,500 years ago. A really, really long yeah, time. Yeah, so they, they, they stuck around this Anatolia slash modern-day Turkey area for a really long time. So why were they there? Why, why did this happen? It is likely... How did this happen? Why did this happen? That should be our theme song. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Tipsy tags. Um, so it is likely that these cats and humans developed a commensalistic... Commensal? What's the right word? A commensal... Re yeah, commensal. commensal relationship. Yeah. I don't know why I wrote commensalistic when I was writing these notes, but here. Here we are. Um, so a commensal relationship as the rise of farming practices would have encouraged the influx of rodents... And thus, cat the influx of cats or wild cats, as there were more rodents, so they'd come in and they'd eat more rodents, and then hey, look at this, we're starting something. Hey, the humans like hey, food chain. these cute little fluffy things are killing these other cute little fluffy things that happen to eat our grain, because around the fertile crescent and there about the Neolithic era is when they start doing like mass farming. So, more farming, more food, more grain, more rats, more cats. I love it. History. 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 And then. In about 7,500 BC, in Cyprus, there was evidence of presence of cats. 
um, as they found buried cat remains that dated back to that time. So showing that there was some migration of cats um, at this time that moved with the humans. And then in about 4400 BC, it is believed that cats then moved into Europe. So, so um, which was actually subsequent to the Neolithization of Europe. So the movement of humans into Europe. Right, so the, the the cats went with the people. Yeah, so the cat, like, further supporting the idea that cats went the, with the people. And then in around 15,000 BC, they are seen, or what's the word, represented, or, mm-hmm. I don't know, I can't. They were discovered. Discovered, or like projected. What's the another word for projected? I'm trying to find. Portrayed. There's a okay. They're portrayed in Egypt in a domestic context. So they've moved on to Egypt as well. And so their spread across the Mediterranean around this time was likely due to their popularity amongst the Mediterranean cultures on ships to help rid the ships of rodents and other pests while they're like traveling around doing their trade thing. Ah, and that's how it's, they spread. That's, yeah, that's how they spread the little... That's how cat people got out. Yep. <laughs> the cat people went exploring. They went for, they went for explores. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then they are later found after that. They were later found by um, on Greek artifacts as early as the end of the 6,000th century BC. So like pots, urns and all that. They've been like depicted on those. Mm-hmm. And then jumping a little bit, a couple, 300 years or so forward in the Greco-Roman period, which was 332 BC to, it's quite a quite a long period actually. So 332 BC to 395 AD. So, wow, that is a long time. Yeah. So, two thousand three hundred to one thousand six hundred years ago, um, they are they were apparently worshipped, and there has been remains found being kept in temples, um, for mummification of these cats. Wow. Yeah, and so it is important to note that um, the cats in Egypt, the Egyptian cats, were actually linked to a separate subclade than to the ones that were in Anatolia. So they probably would have went through more evolution or had slightly different mixing of DNA. Okay. We'll call this one the Egyptian subclade compared to the Anatolian okay. subclade. Right. Um, so the cats in the Eg- Egyptian subclade were found in larger numbers in the ex- Western Anatolia in the first millennia AD. So I'm guessing it would have been a bit of like more genetic intermingling. Yeah. So... As a result, this probably suggests that the Egyptian cats had characteristics that made them more likable. So we had stronger bonds with them. So maybe they were more sociable. They were tamer. They were, they were, they were more likely to let us pat them, rub their bellies. Probably not rub their bellies. Yeah. So no cats ever. No cat has ever liked anyone rubbing their hey, bellies. Hey, I've had a couple cats that I've met that have let me touch their bellies, and they're like, okay. And I'm like, oof. Yeah, that, those, are, those are all outliers. They're all outliers. We have two then. <laughs> anyway, and then so we'll just jump forward into medieval times. Just briefly. Skipping. Just have it all skip I hope you guys have been buckled in for war. this time travel because I should have warned Let's you at the top. Let's do the time warp again. Da, da, da. Right, well, come on, give me some medieval. I love me some medieval kitties. Medieval I love me some medieval times. So in medieval times, cats were compulsory to have upon ships leading Ooh. to their further distribution around the world. And this here might explain the pre- the presence of the Egyptian subclade of the S, F.S. Libica breed, um, mm-hmm. like genetic root. 
um, found in a Viking port of, I'm going to murder, murder this pronunciation because I don't speak Nordic or Icelandic <laughs> or any of these Scandinavian languages, but the Viking port of Ralsvik, Ralsvik, spelled A R A L S W I E K. So Ralsvik, I'm gonna guess. Ralsvik. Ralsvik. Um, estimated to be from the seventh to the eleventh century A.D. So yeah, and then in medieval Europe, the cats were also, um, their uses were also like expanded. So instead of just being for rodent control, their pelts were also used for making cloth. Okay. So yeah, they used their cat skin to make cloth and yeah. fashion. So they were useful both alive and, and after. So if your kitty passed away, yeah. he could still be a nice hat. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. That's how. It was. That's how it was in the medieval times, man. There was they were dark Utilizing times. Utilizing your pets as resources. Poverty, man. Peasants. Yeah. You did what you Peasants. had. You used what you had. Use what you had. Yeah, so like, and also they did further reinforcing the fact that they travel quite widely, is that the Felis Silvestris ornate DNA, which originated in Asia, Asia, not Asia, my God, um, was found in cats um, in the Roman seaport, uh, Roman Red Seaport of Berenike, Berenike, I can't, B-E-R-E-N-I-K-E, so I'm going to guess Berenike because Nike was in the, is a god. It was an Egyptian seaport, basically, yeah. around. It's a wild, a wild stab in the dark on the name. Yeah, right. Sorry, continue. Um, so there, were, there were there was DNA found of DNA in the remains of cats found around this time period, around here in the time period of around the first to second century AD, and also in Turkey in the sixth to seventh century AD. So this, their presence was probably due to the trading routes opening up into these areas, and then cats getting into these areas with the F so FS ornate and then breeding with those cats to like get some of their DNA into it. And then being brought back to being brought back to Egypt and then giving birth to kittens and be like, Hey, our cat's pregnant, shit. It bred with that wild cat. <laughs> yeah, so then um and then I guess I didn't do any the um article didn't really go too much more into it from here in terms of like the spread. But I'm guessing from here then continued on with like Roman trading routes because Rome Rome went yeah. everywhere, so cats probably went like down the silk down the silk road and all that. Kind yeah, of jazz. so like cats were probably sprinkled around every now and then. Um, so and then the paper was also really interesting, and in they covered the beginning of selective breeding for cats okay. for like physical characteristics. Mm. So selective breeding for the physical characteristics wasn't really seen until the Egyptian New Kingdom which was around the 16th to 11th century BC. And also then in Europe in the Middle Ages, so that's the 5th to 15th centuries, I'm guessing AD. And this is when the blotched markings began to be portrayed in artwork, sculpture, like it was began to be recorded um, of the cats that were present at the time. So, and this gene, it's actually, this gene, this indicated that selective breeding started started happening because this gene is a recessive gene. Okay. Yeah, so they started becoming more, like noted and more prevalent of this recessive gene. Um, and then it wasn't until the 18th century that these genes were considered common. So between basically the 
5th century to about the 18th century, they became like probably breeding more and more for this gene because they yeah. liked it. And they like spotty cats. They like the spotty cats. I want, I want it. I would like a miniature leopard in my house, please. I would like a little cheetah. Mm. Or, and um, I think also I probably didn't make it clear, but the blotched markings was more related to the tabby. So like the mackerel tabby. Oh, like right, blotches, right, like okay. long blotches. Long blotches, like, okay. Yeah, right, so, right, like, they're like, oh, we like this stripy mini tiger. I want a tiger. I want a grey tiger in my living room. Um, and then it wasn't until about the 19th century that the, quotations, fancy breeds started making their appearances. So, like, the breed breeds that you think of when you think of a purebred cat, even though it's still a bit yeah. of a grey area to these days. Unless you're involved with the cat breeding like community um so yeah so basically initially back like ten thousand years ago through to about the 18th century physical characteristics weren't that well selected for but behavioral characteristics were so like they said oh we're okay with how they look but i want to improve the attitude first even though the attitude is still not great in some cats do you think that was um, more kind of unintentional? Like, Possibly, um, oh, yeah. these these cats are more friendly, so they hang around us more, and so we and like they bring out their kittens to us, or they they live with us while they have their kittens, so we'll feed them and and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, reading the paper, that so seems was... very much the case. Like, basically, okay. they were commen- it was a commensal relationship. So basically, they're like, hey, this cat's hanging around. Like, okay, this animal's not hurting us or our children, so we'll just let it hang around, and it seems to be getting rid of these rats that seem to be eating our food so like hey this is good for us and the cat's like hey you're letting, you're like not hurting me and i'm able to eat these mice and i'm also able to like you're kind of giving me shelter so hey this is good i guess i'll stick i around. guess i guess i guess i can stay around just a little bit and then they start throwing them on boats and they're like i'm okay with this because there are mice on here and i can still eat <laughs> and no doubt probably some like sailor was like hey have some fish kitty and the kitty's like okay i'll take the fish <laughs> Um, yeah, so um, this trend of cats being s- uh, selected initially for behavioural traits and then for physical traits um, is actually the opposite of what was done for other domesticated species like horses, which were... Okay. Yeah, horses initially were chosen for coat colour differentiation before they were for um, behavioural traits. So kind of explains why horses are crazy. Um, <laughs> we haven't bred them to be calm yet. yet. We've bred them to look pretty, but we haven't bred them to look Yeah, calm. we just jumped on the back and they got us, like, they started running in panic and we're like, oh, we got somewhere real fast with them, eh? I'll keep them around. Yeah, and then, but this, this the, tri- the um, trend of behaviour then physical was actually also seen in chickens. Oh. Yeah, so they, they chose chickens' behaviour before selecting how they look. You wanted friend, friendly chickens. Then. Yeah, you don't want your chickens to run away from you because you want to catch them and eat them yeah. or catch them and have the eggs. Yeah. Predictable laying behaviour and then then make them look pretty. Then give it pretty then feathers. Then give it pretty colour feathers that really don't help it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's a very brief, compacted, lots of dates, lots of year numbers to remember of like the human and the cat like relationship domestication relationship and how it's progressed and spread throughout time so from some wild cat in old day turkey about ten thousand years ago who decided oh this mouse looks nice and this human doesn't look too bad so i'm just gonna go here to today or 2018 at least to today 2018 where there's about 
317 million all around the world apart from Antarctica. So now remember folks, um at the end there is a quiz, so please remember the years and the numbers that we have mentioned today. Oh no, I will not do that to you. Oh god, there are so many dates and off. Oh. But yeah, any any questions? Any questions? Any wild speculation you would like to wild speculation. Um just I just have like one question. Mm-hmm. Like, who the fuck thought of a sphinx cat, and why is it a thing? No tail. No, the ones that have is it oh, a sphinx hairless. cat that have no they have no fur. Yeah, sorry, I got confused with rex. a bobcat with a manx cat. Is it the, a rex? Like a it's a rex. Cat I think they're hyperallergenic. Cat. But how would you know that? I, I, I don't with, know. I don't know. Like like who thought? You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna breed a cat that has no hair. So that it's hypoallergenic. No, no one thought that. No one thought, I'm going to breed a cat with no hair because it's going to look like an alien. <laughs> maybe, maybe they like it. People, um, okay, sorry, controversy. People like pugs, so. That's true. And also there was like the China, the Chinese hairless dog as well. Say again. There's like a hairless dog breed as well. Oh, the um, Chinese crested. Chinese crested, like that's one. Yeah, half, um, it's like, you can get some that have no fur, some that have some fur. And so it has a little bit on top yeah. of the head, like, oh. Also, sorry, apologies for the little buzzy thing before, that was just my microphone being moved around. I can mute it. Buzz. I can mute you. I have the power. Mute me. She has the power. She has the editing power. Aha. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's kitties and humans. Kitties and humans. And how they develop their tabby patterns, which is very prevalent these days, which... Was actually mm-hmm. a recessive breed, a recessive trait. I, I know. I think I have like one thing that I know about. Like I have an interesting fact about tabbies Tell us. that I remember from eons ago. I think it was something like a Joanna Lumley documentary where she like traveled. You know how she does those like train ones where she like goes on. Oh yes. A, you know, for a billion miles every time. Oh, yeah, she did the Nile, didn't she? Yeah, she did the Nile, but I can't remember if it was her. I, I, like, I have this, I think it's her in my head, but it could be, honestly, anyone. But there was this thing um, about how if you look at, like, a tabby, uh, a lot of tabbies have, like, M's on their head, like that. Huh. Like, the, the M's. True. And apparently it's, like, something about, um, there's, it's, a, it's a tail, it's a, it's, a, it's a tail from, and apparently it's when Muhammad came and he put his fingers over the cat and in the shape of an M. I love that. Yeah. It's so cool. So, and so that's why they all have like an M. That's just like a random fact that I know for some reason. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, yeah. from being. Because also that. Yeah. Yeah. Being the humble mouse catcher to being worshipped to being worshipped to a lesser extent these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, mm. kitties. Whoop, whoop. Kitties. Whoop. Yeah. Um, should we crack on into your. Special boy. My special boy. My special boy. Bye. A little quick one. A little quick one. Woo-woo. And honestly, um, Alicia told me off yesterday because she thinks I'm being too dog oriented. No, it's fine. I it's, don't uh, no, care. I'm being a dick. I don't care. I'm going to do all the doggos all right, because all right. the doggos so, are As long as we know that you're going to do the doggos, so I'll find something different. <laughs> Variety okay. is the spice of life. So mine, a variety is the spice. Bisay of life. So mine is again another pretty popular, like well well known animal. Doge. Um Doge. And uh, again from Japan. 
Japan, you guys love your dogs. I'm just uh, like, you're just obsessed with animals and I love it. So uh, this one, uh, quite a well-known dog. Uh, you might not know his name, but you might know his story. So this is the story of a Shiba Inu dog, uh, sorry, an Akita Shiba Inu dog called Hachiko. 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 And uh, Hachiko is uh, a very famous dog in Japan because of, well, how, well, his, yeah, because of, because of his story, um, because of what happened. So um, he was owned, his owner, uh, Hachiko's owner, was a guy named, uh, Ho oh, I'm going to butcher this name, I'm really sorry, um, Izaburo uh, Uino, I think that's how you say his name. Um, and he was a prof uh, a, he was a professor in agriculture science Ag at Tokyo University. Agriculture awards. Um, and he was there uh, at a professor at Tokyo University. And he had always wanted uh, an Akita dog. And he uh, was shown um, Hachiko uh, by one of his students and encouraged to adopt him. And so he did. I'm just imagining um, them so, like locking eyes across the room, being like, do 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 do. Uh, sorry, continue. Yep, <laughs> the best friends forever. Um, so Hachiko, or um, his nickname was Hachi. Um, they became best friends, and um, Aizaburo loved his dog, um, and treated him as his own son. And apparently, they were inseparable. Aww. So um, as Hachiko grew older, he started to uh, go to the train station with um, his owner um, in the morning and then wait for him at the train station uh, when his owner came back. But there, and you know, this went on for a while, but unfortunately on May the 21st, 1925, mm. only at only two years old, Hachiko was waiting at the train station, that's the uh, Shiboya train station, um, for Aizaburo, but he never came home. Um, he suffered from an apparent cerebral hemorrhage and had died suddenly and unexpectedly while at work. So you'd think that, you know, Hachi would become, like, depressed and he'd, like, never leave and he'd stay in one place, but you'd be incorrect. He moved in with the gardener um, of the uh, Uino family, but for the rest of his 10-year life, so for another eight years, he went to the Sh uh, Shibuya train station every morning and every afternoon, precisely when the train was due to enter the station, and he sat there for hours waiting for Izaburu to return. Um, so in 1932, a major Japanese newspaper picked up the story uh, and published it um, and made Hachi a celebrity all over Japan. Rightly so. Uh, as they should have. And everyone started calling him uh, Chuken Hachiko. Oh, there's an alarm going off. That's always good. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Power through. People started, call people started calling him Ch uh, Chuken Hachiko, which means Hachiko the faithful dog. <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear it? Oh, yeah, it's wailing like my soul. It's fine. <laughs> oh, God, it, it's it's our uh, it's our it's our uh, um it's our new theme song. Nine one one. What's your emergency? Nine one one. 
so uh, so it became almost uh, it became na- nationally uh, it was a national story, and it inspired many people to travel to the Shibuya train station, um, just to meet Hachiko, and give him treats. <laughs> Um, and in 1934, a statue of Hachiko was unveiled um, in the Shibuya train station, and Hachiko was present as the guest of honor. <gasps> Special boy! Special boy. Unfortunately, Hachiko passed away um, in 1935, but apparently it was peacefully, and he was near the train station. <gasps> hmm. um, and that was on March the 8th of 1935. Oh, um, if you'd like to see Hachiko, you can actually see him. He is on display at the National Science Museum um, in Ueno, Tokyo. Did they? Did um, they? Did they do a good job the taxidermy? They did. Okay, he good. looks very. He's very handsome. He's very handsome. Um, there is also a monument of Hachiko next to um, Mr. Ueno's tomb in Oyama Cemetery in Tokyo. There, there is a bronze statue um, in front of the Shibuya train station. That's the one that they erected. Um, however, the well, the original one that they erected was actually um, melted down during World War Two oh. for a source of metal. But they re uh, they redid it, remade it, uh, and there's one uh, there that stands to this day. Hard times. There's also um, a mosaic artwork of Hachiko um, in front of the station, and there's even uh, a Hachiko dog, uh, an Akita Hachiko dog museum in Japan. Oh. And that's uh, located in, Oda- in Odate or Odart City, um, which is an, apparently an Akita prefecture of Japan. Apparently, they just love Akitas there. Hell yes. Yes. Oh so my gosh. They are just so adorable. Um, so there was movies made about this. Um, Hachi the movie, um, Hachiko Monogatari, um, and that's that was the one that was in Japanese. Um, there was an American version um, called Hachiko, A Dog's Tale, made in 2009. Um, and they're both available to watch um, online. Online. There's even books about him. Um, you can get, get them. Um, there's book, yeah, most of them are just called Hachiko. Um, and, but they, yeah, it's great. It's great. He's, he's been honored. He's apparently, he's, he's a well-loved dog. And hopefully, if I ever get to go to Tokyo um, or Japan, I will get to see him. Yes. Um, or see at least see the statue because I think that would be pretty cool. Yes. He's a good. Boy. Uh, He's a good boy. The, the That's what a good boy should be. Oh, boy. He's the goodest boy. It, He's the goodest. Of boys. Even his memorial helped the wartime effort. Yeah. Good boy. Right. Tell us about your boy. I don't know how I can follow that. Um. <laughs> I've got a very ridiculous boy to follow up. Okay. He's very... I want to hear about your ridiculous. Oh God! Okay. Oh, hold on. I'll just give myself because. Oh, Hachiko! He's a gorgeous boy. We love him here. Okay. Movie night. Movie night. We're gonna watch it. Put that on your movie list. Put that on your special boys movie list. Um, special boys. Okay. This is a, actually this will be. It's a good segue into mine. This will be a next a good one to put on your special boys movie list. Oh, okay. Um, okay, so I am doing, I'm probably going to butcher the name, but the Punxsutawney Phil. I'm doing Punxsutawney Phil. Punxsutawney Phil, yes. okay. Uh, and I got this from mentalfloss.com. 
in an article called 11 Punxsutawneyville Facts for Groundhog Day by Kate Airbland and Wikipedia in an article about Punxsutawney Phil. So, Punxsutawney Phil is a groundhog from Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and on the 2nd of February every year, he emerges from his home at sunrise and predicts whether the winter weather will continue on or whether there'll be an early spring. So, okay. if you're familiar with Groundhog Day, you... I know a bit about it, but not... Yeah, much. so I was a bit... I was, I was saying when I first started researching it, but yeah. So, apparently, if he sees his shadow and then returns to his hole, there will be six more weeks of winter weather. And if he does not see his shadow, then there will be an early spring. Quotation marks. Okay. Um, so, yes, this day on 2nd of February is known as Groundhog Day in the US and Canada. And formally began in 1887, which is when our boy Phil made his first appearance. Okay, so wait, okay, so I'm gathering here that he's not just one groundhog. No, he's just the he's just the first groundhog that they found nope. on the second of February. No, Phil has apparently been around since 1887. So oh, course, he is so, at yeah. least 133 years old. <laughs> 130 years old. Okay. Apparently, he keeps his youth by drinking a special magical groundhog punch <laughs> that he is okay. fed annually at a summer picnic. Right. And apparently one sip will extend his life by seven years. Wow. So he gets given this punch by the inner circle of the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club. Oh, of course, yeah. So this group consists of 15 members and they pander to Phil's every need all year round. <laughs> and can be clearly identified during the annual ceremony by their signature tuxedos and top hats. Oh, okay. They're the they're the groundhog security. They're the groundhog security that take care of them, and they fight off them naysayers like you, Katie, who say <laughs> Phil is not the same groundhog as the one in eighteen eighty seven. I see. I am not the first person to make a complaint. Uh, <laughs> I'm not the first person to question the authenticity of of Punxsutawney Phil. Punxsutawney Phil. Of Punxsutawney Phil's age. Yes. I see. There's <laughs> just on, and on that note, I'll give you a little bit of information. Like, I say you're an Asa, but I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of information. So, in the wild, groundhogs live for about two, about six years, or up to six years. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in captivity, they live for up to fourteen years. So, yeah. I think a hundred and what was it? 133 at least. 130 years. I think that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, that is a bit of a stretch. Yeah. I think, uh, I'll let you guys make your own decisions on that one. <laughs> um, yes. He also speaks his own language. Ground. Oh, yeah. What's that? Punxsutawney Philian? No. Close, though. Groundhoggies. <laughs> Groundhoggies. Oh, this is getting better and better. And apparently, I'm really sorry. I'm. I shouldn't be taking. No, it's fine. Like, uh, everyone's entitled to their own opinions. (laughs) I'm not. This is honestly. This is great. Please tell me more. Okay, so apparently, the inner circle president also knows this language and can also speak it, so that he can Uh translate Punxsutawney Phil's messages on the second of February to let the public know whether or not there will be. Early spring or the winter weather will continue for another six weeks. Yeah, got it. What's that? What's that, Punxsutawney? It's going to be another six weeks of winter? Got it. Um, yeah, so, but actually, he wasn't always named Phil. Oh, right, yeah, of course, he changed it when he had a midlife crisis. <laughs> In 1961, his name was officially yeah. changed to Phil. Apparently, um, after... Philip 
uh, after the UK's Prince Philip. Oh, yeah. The club claims it was after King Philip, but it's pretty more likely UK's King um, Prince Philip mm-hmm. in the 50s. Before that, he was known as Brea Groundhog. So, brother Groundhog. Brea Groundhog. Groundhog. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'll give you a few more quick facts on our boy, a hundred thirty-three-year-old groundhog. Tell me more about our, our immortal groundhog. He has a wife called Phyllis. Oh, that's kind of. He cute. met Oprah and Ronald Reagan. Oh, nice. He was anti-prohibition, threatening sixty weeks of winter if he wasn't allowed to drink. Ah, <laughs> get rid of my alcohol or I'll freeze you all. Um, he lives in the Punxsutawney ground. Uh, town library but on the day around the day, around the celebration he goes to goblin's knob to predict the weather goblin's knob. it is a place so he lives so he, did you say he lives inside he lives in the town library yeah and punks okay. tawny and then he goes to i was just, this is why i was losing my shit the other day because goblin's knob goblin's knob that's 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 a real legitimate place goblin's knob katie's just disappeared the out of the so- screen i can't see her anymore she's just dying <laughs> This is like, oh, okay, this is getting better and better, honestly. Please tell me more. Yeah, so he goes to Gobbler's Knob on the 2nd of February and predicts the weather. Predicts. That was very Australian of me. He predicts the weather. Predicts the weather. And, of course, he and his town featured in the 1993 film Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. He's also had a few more television appearances, but I can't remember what they were. But, yeah, he's had a few more, like, television series features and all that. Throughout the years. So, yeah, that's my quite brief section on Punk's the 20 Phil. So, I'll let you decide whether or not he's actually 133 years plus. <laughs> um, and my, cl- uh, my question is, does this elixir work? Does this groundhog <laughs> so, punch work? And I does it work some? on humans? Because hit me up. Yeah. If, if so, where can I purchase this? Yeah, so... Oh, but then you got to ask the question, do I want to live that long? <laughs> do I want to live? Well, no, because remember, it's one sip is seven years, right? Yeah, but I think... So you just take a sip every seven years and, like, reevaluate. Yeah, but oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's not going to stop you, like, it just extends your life, right? It's not going to stop you getting killed, but if you, like, get hit by a, you know... I presume so. ...or something. I presume so. Unless... Yeah. It has the magical ability to stop bullets or, like... What if they put down mole holes? Gas. Gas. Yeah. Maybe it does. Who knows? We don't know what's Who in knows? the groundhog punch, so it could be yeah. some, like, special... Yeah. Potion. Chemists. Make Resist- some groundhog punch. potion. Yeah. <gasps> we need to... <gasps> next... We're going we to make a cocktail drink. called groundhog punch. Yeah, I was going to say, our next drink is going to be called the... Oh, God. Groundhog punch. Okay. Groundhog punch. It's going to be really alcoholic to pick a punch yeah and it's got candy floss on top to be like fluffy like a groundhog fluffy like a groundhog and then like what could you could you like and then like brown sugar around the rim like dirt yes he's like coming out of his (gasps) no oreo oreo crumbs yes oh my god i was thinking like what can we make like the dirt out of oh my goodness Uh, baristas um cocktail cocktail makers mixologists that's what they're called yeah oh that's it mixologists make a make a groundhog punch for us Make it happen. Make it happen. Yeah, so that's, yeah. Any that's any, any other questions about Punks the Tawny Phil? 
Uh, no comment. No comment. <laughs> fair no, no, enough. No, I think I'm. Yeah, I think I'm just gonna keep the rest of my opinions to myself. But very interesting. I mean, that's really cool. I mean, like, it's a very interesting tradition. And I want. Yeah, I I want to know how to learn how to speak. Groundhoggies. Um, groundhoggies. Um, I think I got pretty close to my totally accent. Sorry there. It's a, it's a dialect of groundhoggies. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a very, very specific dialect. <laughs> right. Um, oh, <laughs> random question time. Oh, no. This section. I keep forgetting about this section. It's a new one, so like, it's just to like buffer it out or like to like segue out nicely. Okay. Um, well, let's see. Okay, I'm house-sitting at the moment, and... I think this place needs pets because it's lacking pets. So if you had the ability to have like, okay, let's just head, you say you had your dream house. Mm-hmm. What pets would you have at your house? Like as a minimum, as a minimum. Bunnies. Because I know. Bunnies, and, know. bunnies and a dog, probably. Bunnies and a dog, okay. I'd have, and I'd have a yeah. separate room for them. A separate room for the bun okay. buns oh, and the nice. dog can just live in the rest of the house with me. Nice, nice. You? And like the bunnies have their own like, run outside where they can go outside. hell yeah um i definitely just have like i definitely as a minimum have dogs yes. um maybe a few cats mm. um just they can just do whatever they want i don't mind um maybe a horse or two ponies ponies but definitely dogs, mm. definitely dogs. basically anything that like needs a home mm, and yeah. needs some love basically my dream my like my dream home like my dream property would be just like a giant rehoming facility. Yes. It would just be me rehoming all the dogs. <laughs> it's just a giant kind of rescue center. The beeps. Beeps. Alright, what about you? What's your random question? Um, so what would be what okay, what is your groundhog punch? Like what is your what is your oh what is your go what is what what drink do you like keeps you going? What is your groundhog punch? <laughs> my my main drink uh, that I my go to uh, is really lame. It's just like black sambuca. Yes. Um, but uh, I would never say no to a good butterscotch cocktail, mm. which you introduced me to. By the way, what? Yeah, the fish. That first oh. time was my first ever cocktail, and that was the first ever cocktail I'd ever had, and that was so good. Shout out to the fish. Shout out to the fish. Cocktail bar in Palmy North. Hit it up if you want good cocktails amazing cocktails delicious oh. what about you what's your go-to drink what's your groundhog punch my groundhog punch in terms punch. of my go-to um probably a good a good whiskey and ginger ale but if i want to if i want to if i want to keep going till like 4 a.m <laughs> there's a special energy drink sachet called joss and you have that with vodka and that like it's a, you're ready to go the entire night long that just sounds like a disaster waiting to I mean, if you're going to go to... I hate town, but if I'm going to go to town, like, let's go. All right. Um, well, thank you very much yes. for listening in. Oh, Follow us. We always enjoy your company. Yes, we do. Follow us on everything, because I remembered this time. If you don't do it for any other reason, do it because I remembered it. <laughs> because I'm learning for you guys. I'm learning for you folks. I am... I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I'm setting up a Snapchat. That's my that's yeah, my, uh, pet project. my goal this week, right? My pet project. <laughs> Your pet project. My pet project. Ah. Um, yeah, yeah, so follow us on the things, as we said at the top, at Tips Taxi on Twitter. 
Tips Text Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Thank you. Thank you very much. Check with your vet before you wreck your pet. Boom.